<laughs> Good morning and welcome to Monday Mornings with Maddie and Morgan. I'm Maddie. And I'm Morgan. Hi, friend. Hi. How, How are, are you? you? Oh. <laughs> oh. I'm really sad that we have like no snow, but. <laughs> I know. It was like 60 degrees and pouring all day yesterday. Just ruined it all. <laughs> Come on, it's almost January. The oh, heck? That snow so that we can do what we're about to discuss <laughs> this week. <laughs> we're going to segue into our episode today. <laughs> yeah. What about, are we talking about, Morgan? We're talking about the history of skiing and snowboarding today. Skiing has an extremely long history, like way longer than I was expecting. I oh, I was thinking like it dated back to like the 17 or 1800s. Yeah. But as you're about to find out, I was very wrong. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All of this information came directly from the Vermont Ski and Snowboard Museum site, freethepowder.com, powder.com, and skiinghistory.org. As far as we know, Skiing was not originally a recreational activity. It was more used for transportation in places that got a lot of snow. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> listen to this. The first archaeological evidence of skis dates back to approximately 6300 BC. No. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> Obviously, we, we don't know, like, to the day, if that's correct, but... Did so... they even have shoes? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, not not as we would think of them. Jeez. I'm picturing, like, boots with the fur situation. Oh, yeah. Apple bottom jeans. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest set of skis were found near Lake Sindor in Russia in two peat bogs near the lake. Specific items that were found include the remains of worked wooden objects such as skis and sled runners. Hmm. Wooden ski, obviously. Yeah. And rock paintings show hunters and gatherers using skis, like, about 5,000 years ago. Wild. So I don't know if you've heard of peat bogs or if you know what peat bogs are. But I know them in the instances of dead bodies being found in them. Right. <laughs> like, basically, they're super <laughs> acidic, so they preserve everything. So cool. <laughs> Damn. Because you would expect them to just disintegrate. Yeah. Or, like, at least turn to, like, petrified wood type of situation. Right. But I'll, we can put some pictures up on our Instagram. Oh, yeah. Some pictures of the pieces of skis that they found are pretty cool. Ooh. And some of the rock art, like, the rock painting. The first community believed to have skied were the ancestors of the Sami, who is the, they are the only indigenous people to Scandinavia. Ooh. And as the glaciers retreated in the Stone Age, hunters follower followed reindeer and elk herds from Central Asia's Altai re- region, moving to the northwest and northeast, and they used skis covered with fur that worked like modern climbing skins. Ooh. So that they were able to work across the land and go uphill as well as obviously going downhill. So that's that was really why cool. I had no idea about that. <laughs> wow. They were all so much smarter than us back then. <laughs> right? <laughs> Imagine how long it took people to develop modern climbing skins. 
Solenskis came to be used across the Eurasian Arctic regions for transportation and for hunting. Throughout the Middle Ages, Scandinavian farmers, hunters, and warriors used skis to obviously hunt and farm and yeah. fight. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> and by the 18th century, the Swedish army trained and competed on skis. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just wait. There's more. <laughs> In... 1300 BC, Norse mythology writings began about Ullr and Skade, who are, who are the god and goddesses of skiing. Which is the coolest thing. I love that. North myth- Mort- North- mm. <laughs> Norse mythology <laughs> has a god and goddess of skiing. That's so fun. It like, truly shows the origins of skiing. <laughs> In 1689, accounts of skiing began to show up in published works, specifically in Austrian literature, with writings about skiers near the Adriatic using short skis to turn on steep slopes, which we can kind of relate to now, because our skis now are a lot shorter than they were originally. I was thinking ski blades. (laughs) Honestly, me too, when I was reading. (laughs) 10 out of 10, do not recommend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're so scary. (laughs) (laughs) Sometime in the 18th century, skiing began its evolution as a recreational sport in the Telemark region of Norway, which sounds familiar, huh? Oh, yeah, Telemark. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that was a place until I started doing this research. (laughs) Now things make sense, okay. (laughs) They invented styles of turning to control speed, the Telemark turn and the Christie turn, which is a specific type of turn as well. The focus on speed led to changes in the design of narrower and lighter construction skis. Obviously, the design of the ski really evolved once it was primarily used for recreation. Because Mm -hmm. originally, when they were just mostly using skis for transportation, they were basically just, like, very long pieces of wood that they would just... They had, like, straps on them. They weren't in, like, actual ski boots. They just had whatever footwear they were wearing. Oh, so kind of like snowshoes. Kinda, yeah, kind of like like long, skinny sh- snowshoes. Yeah, and obviously at that point they didn't have edges on them, so it was just wood. Yeah, which sounds terrifying. So, <laughs> oh yeah, not not ideal. <laughs> Definitely not uh, safe. Good luck in the ice. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> this is my one of my favorite fun facts that I learned. In 1716, the Great Northern War between the Russians, Swedish, and Norwegians was fought primarily on skis. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, some of the illustrations that I found about the Great Northern War were very cool. In 1850, woodcarvers, also in Telemark, Norway. Telemark is like the... MVP of this entire story, basically. Makes sense. They basically <laughs> founded any sort of semi-modern technology in skiing. Yeah. So, woodcarvers in Telemark, Norway, invented the cambered ski. The bow-shaped cambered ski arches up towards the center to distribute your weight, or the weight of the skier, more evenly across the length of the ski. Before this, skis had to be thick <laughs> to glide without... <laughs> bowing downward and sinking into the snow because you 
obviously get stuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Camber made it possible that a thinner, lighter ski didn't sink in the middle. So the thin, cambered ski floated more easily over the soft snow and flexed easily to absorb shock of bumps and whatever, maneuvered more easily because it's lighter and easier to swing into a turn, which is important. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not straight lining it down the mountain. No thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But so, yeah, that was a huge, huge evolution in the design of skis. Which you can kind of see already that once skiing became more of a recreational sport instead of, like, solely functional, there was a lot of changes that were made. Oh, yeah. Even now, I feel like just year to year, the skis look so different. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Especially between, like, the 80s and the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. There was, like, a complete (laughs) shift in the design of skis. Everyone wants fat skis now. <laughs> I know. Even in New England, where we very much do not need them. <laughs> no. <laughs> that could just be my opinion, but... <laughs> that, it could be us, though. It's fine. In 1861, Onion Valley, California, hosted the first organized down, downhill ski race. Um, skiers used 8 to 10 foot hickory sticks. They were cambered hickory, hickory skis, but... We still don't have any sort of metal edging or anything on them. In 1868, Sondre Norheim, who's considered the grandfather of skiing, won the first national ski competition in present-day Oslo, Norway, uh-huh. pioneering the Telemark and Christiana turns, which are those same turns that we talked about before. Norheim is also credited with inventing the Telemark binding. So for those of us that don't know what a Telemark binding is, it basically just a ski binding where your heel can lift up so it requires a different kind of a different type of turn (laughs) (laughs) i don't telemark ski i know people that do is that when you like bend down on your knee basically yeah basically you're doing lunges all the way down the mountain (laughs) so our next big evolution in the ski design was the first two-layer laminated ski built by H.M. Christensen in Norway, and that was in 1893. Meanwhile, in Glarus, Switzerland, Carpenter Melchior Jacobert launches what is apparently the first ski factory in Central Europe. So, big moves. It's no longer like one little grandpa on a mountain carving new <laughs> skis. <laughs> we now have a ski factory. <laughs> Damn. In 1894, Fritz Hutfield introduces the toe iron, providing more control on steeper slopes. So that's basically just like the front part of your binding. Oh, gotcha. Yep. It still doesn't lock in, but <laughs> it secures your foot more more than it did. Yeah. In 1899, Ferdinand Porsche designed it designed it. <laughs> designs <laughs> <laughs> the first four-wheel drive car. Which doesn't sound relevant, but it made mountains way more accessible. Oh. So people had way more access to areas that can ski. The chairlift still didn't exist yet, but we're getting there. In 1905, an Alpine unit of the French army undertook the first series production of a Telemark-style ski in France. So now we're going to France. Nice. 
in 1907. Hans Schneider was the first ski instructor in the first ski school in St. Anton, Austria. He used what was called the Arlberg, or he invented what was called the Arlberg method, which takes skiers from a snowplow <laughs> or a pizza <laughs> to a full S turn, to a parallel turn, etc., etc. And it was the first uniform set of ski instruction, and it kind of set the standard for all ski instruction from then on out. In 1924, Chamonix, France hosted the first Winter Olympics, which is like my dream vacation destination. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) I definitely don't think I could hang with the skiers there, but... (laughs) No. (laughs) They're intense. (laughs) I'd end up in the hot tub. It's fine. (laughs) Hey, that's fine, too. Yeah. <laughs> in 1928, after a near-fatal accident in which Rudolf Lettner's hickory edges lost their grip on icy snow, the Salzburg native introduced the steel edge on the ski so that you're able to grip into ice. Which, being from the East Coast, we know ice well, and we know how important edges are. <laughs> also in 1926, Swiss ski raker, raker, racer, sorry I can't speak. It's fine. Guido Rouge invented the Kandahar binding, which used a spring-loaded cable that holds the heel down for alpine skiing. So now not everybody has to use a telemark binding. <laughs> That's good. <It's> just like <laughs> big step. In 1931, the first FIS ski race was held. Ooh. Which is cool because those obviously are still going on today. In 1932, Norway's Bjorn Ole Vostater <laughs> and Fun. Seattle's George Aland each produced a three-layer laminated ski using waterproof glues that didn't delaminate after a couple weeks like their predecessors. Oh my god, can you imagine a couple weeks and your skis delaminate? <laughs> yeah, I was reading something, I was like, yeah, you could go for like... I think they said six to eight times of skiing, and you'd start mm-hmm. to delaminate. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> vertically laminated cores made for stronger, lighter, and livelier boards. Boards as in skis, not snowboarding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 1934, Clint Gilbert installed the first American rope toe on his farm in Woodstock, Vermont. Shout out, Aww. Vermont. That's where I live. (laughs) Not in Woodstock, but... (laughs) (laughs) Using a Model T engine for power. The tow gained 900 vertical feet and cost $1 a day. (laughs) So instead of a $100 lift ticket for a day, you could pay $1. (laughs) True. I do have to say this was before the traditional chairlift, so... Oh, yeah. Great deal back then. Great deal today, even, but... <laughs> yeah, otherwise you were climbing up the hill to ski down. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> so, shout out to Clint Gilbert. He was an MVP in New England skiing. <laughs> in 1936, Brighton, Utah, and Brighton, Utah opens, and three years later, Alta opened. Fun. In 1936, Sun Valley, Idaho installed the first chairlift in the world, which was adapted from a conveyor belt on a banana farm. Oh! 
Is that cool? <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah. So creative. <laughs> in 1930, the first aerial trailway in America was built at Cannon Mountain Ski Area in Franconia Notch, New Hampshire. Shout out to Cannon Mountain. It's like my favorite ski mountain in all of New England. (laughs) Shout out to Franconia Notch. (laughs) Shout out to the White Mountains. (laughs) Shout out New Hampshire. In 1939, so just one year later, after breaking his leg, (laughs) a seemingly inevitable injury for skiers at the time, Halmar Havam invented the first toe-release binding. So... Obviously, telemark bindings and even the spring binding that was invented a little bit later on, your toe is fixed. So, unlike current skis where the front of your binding can release, you were just Mm -hmm. stuck. So, therefore, if you crashed seriously, you were, like, pretty much going to break your leg no matter what. Ah. (laughs) That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. No thanks. <laughs> if I was skiing in, or if I had the option to ski in like the 1930s, I'd probably pass. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, doesn't seem worth it. <laughs> missed me with that one, but hit me up with the sled. <laughs> in 1940, Pico, Vermont installs the first American T bar. Have you ever used a T bar? No, I've seen them, like, not allowed to be used and i've seen videos of people trying to use them and they're I not my favorite thing in the world <laughs> <laughs> i mean if it's your only option then fine but <laughs> i'm glad we've made it far from there i'm not a huge fan yeah i would need a lot of instruction <laughs> <laughs> in 1943 president franklin delano Rose- delano roosevelt authorized the formation of Camp Hale's 10th Mountain Division, which Hmm. is, it's a division of the army that was solely based on skis. Upon return from World War II, its members became a major force in the development of skiing. So we should definitely do a full episode on this because shout out to the Vermont Ski and Snowboard Museum in Stowe, Vermont. They have a whole section about the 10th Mountain Division vision and it's awesome it's really cool that's they did some really cool stuff so we should definitely look into that in a new in a future episode definitely also if anybody's in the Stowe, vermont area definitely check out the vermont ski and snowboard museum it's a free museum they take donations you can become a member for a small fee Hmm. Um, they just have some really cool memorabilia and artifacts and they do also have a bunch of local art in the gift shop which is really neat awesome and it's in an old church which is cool oh we love repurposed old buildings and museums and local artwork (laughs) true (laughs) (laughs) oh and which this was a fun fact that i learned while i was looking they i used their website for quite a few things yeah. Just because they have a really good, their website is a really good resource. Mm-hmm. I learned that you can rent out the whole museum. That's awesome. There was like wedding pictures and like <laughs> you can have like conferences. It's not a huge space, but that'd be so cool. Oh, yeah. We'll have a party there. You're all invited. All four Our first of live show. <laughs> In 1944, the first cellulose plastic bottom called Cellulix 
replaced pine tarring as ski bases. So I kind of covered this, but pine tarring was used as the base of skis. So, which is like basically pine pitch. I don't know what that is. Sticky and like the stuff that comes off of trees. Oh, like so sap. it's just, okay. <laughs> I didn't know there was another word for it other than sap. Yep. <laughs> In 1945, Montgomery Atwater was discharged from the 10th Mountain Division, and over the next season, he started the first avalanche research center in Ulta, Utah, which is obviously super important because people, with all of our technology today, people still die in avalanches every yeah. year. So imagine in the 40s. Oh my god. Before I mean, there was any they're... sort of avalanche research. Yeah. I think there are more frequent avalanches right now just because of climate change. Yep. But also without any, like, <laughs> trackers or proper training back then, I bet there was probably, like, similar amount of deaths per year. Right. We could, we're also should do a whole episode about climate change and the ski industry. Yes. To clarify, listeners, this is not a skiing podcast. <laughs> No. <laughs> but <laughs> there would definitely be more than one skiing episode. <laughs> There's a lot of different topics related to skiing. Exactly. Just that one where you like do cross country skiing and shoot things is Oh, the biathlon. Yes. That is so cool. Imagine I... how you must have to have so much control over your breathing and your heart rate to be able to do that. Oh yeah, your cardio is like insane yeah <laughs> your resting heart rate has to be so low <laughs> yeah you just wow. must have to run like a marathon every day <laughs> that's your training <laughs> go run a marathon every day <laughs> yes all right our next development is in 1946 the gom ski with a laminated wood core sandwiched between a top plastic layer and a bottom metal layer and then cellulix on the base was the first ski with three different layered materials. Hmm. Oh, this is an exciting one. In 1948, Wagner introduced the first stretch pant. <laughs> Skiers everywhere were stoked. Oh my god. <laughs> because, so, also at the Vermont Ski and Snowboard Museum, they go through a timeline of, like, skiing outfits through history and we're talking like for ladies like long ankle length wool skirts (laughs) i just can't imagine skiing in a skirt no with like 12 layers underneath it (laughs) like just to put pants underneath yeah (laughs) or then like wool pants with fur coats oh my god oh yeah it's a whole saga (laughs) (laughs) i love it We'll put some visuals on social media so you can see what we're talking about. But yeah, so that's why these stretch pants were a huge deal. The 1950s were also a big year for several other reasons. Also in 1950, after spending a couple winters living in a teardrop trailer in the Sun Valley parking lot, Warren Miller released his first film, Deep in Light. Mm. And this year, I think it was the 72nd annual Warren Miller movie came out. We love that. R.I.P. Rest in peace, Warren. (laughs) A true legend. Yeah. 
Also in 1950, Mohawk Mountain, Connecticut, made the first artificial snow. And even though it was sticky and not quite like natural snow, it revolutionized, really revolutionized the ski industry. True. Especially for places that get cold but don't get a ton of natural snow. Yeah. <clears throat> New England. <laughs> really the whole East Coast, because I know like there are ski resorts in like West Virginia. Oh, yeah. In There's the colder areas that just indoor don't. Indoor ones in like New oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, there's that new indoor place in New Jersey, which actually is kind of cool. Where like it's, the people in that area can go and like bring their kids. Cool, but I also have issues with it because environmentally, you have to keep that place so cold. Oh yeah, it's like a giant freezer. Yeah, it's definitely not a sustainable thing. But no, <laughs> we're all about loving the earth. Yes, but. <laughs> It is good for people in that area that, like, have children and they don't want to haul their children up to, like, Vermont or whatever to bring them skiing. Oh, yeah. In 1955, the Swiss-slash-German company Henke introduces the first buckled boots. So up until the 50s, you were still lacing your boots, your ski boots. (laughs) I feel like they would just come untied all the time. I know. You'd have to, like, triple knot them and be, like, then untying them. They would be, like, frozen together, probably. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. How far we've come. <laughs> really? <laughs> In 1956, at the Cortina Winter Games, Austrian Tony Saylor was the first man to sweep three alpine events, taking the downhill giant slalom and slalom races, all with gold medals. In 1961, the first ski brakes were invented, eliminating safety straps. So, (laughs) I don't know if you know about these safety straps. I don't think so. (laughs) So, the safety straps before ski brakes basically attached to the skier. (laughs) So, if you fell and your bindings came off, like if your skis came off, your skis were attached to you, so you just get pummeled by your skis while you were falling. So, like, when you were little and you'd go boogie boarding and then you'd fall off and it would smack you under the waves? Exactly. <laughs> so, you're, imagine just, like, tumbling down a mountain and your skis are just whacking you the whole way down. Oh. No. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is before helmets. That's bad. Very. Guys. Yeah, no one Brain should damage. just before helmets. What? <laughs> Brain damage. <laughs> oh, I'm excited to tell you about this part. Okay. Dolores LaChapelle moved to DeVos, Switzerland, where her husband Ed was studying at the Swiss Avalanche Institute. Mm-hmm. And so soon the entire ski school is mimicking her skiing style. Forty years later, she published a book. And she wrote... She has a quote from this book that I thought was awesome. It says, Powder snow skiing is not fun. It's life fully lived, life in a blaze of reality. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, so clearly, this was in 1950. So clearly, Dolores was a badass. Oh, yeah. She revolutionized the skiing style for this entire ski school. Damn. In Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out, Dolores. I love you, Dolores. 
Also in 1950, head skis were established, and they had sharp steel edges. And head skis are obviously still very popular today. Yes. In 1963, Bob Lange created the first fiberglass boot with a lace closure. So Lange went back to the lace closure instead of the buckle closure, but it's a fiberglass Mm -hmm. boot instead of... I think at this point, we had moved on from leather boots, but we were looking at hard plastic boots. Yeah. Um, So a fiberglass boot obviously created a lighter, more flexible boot. This was a fun one that I didn't know. In 1965, Bob Smith, who was an orthodontist, used dental tools to create the first goggle with a sealed thermal lens and breathable vent foam. And that's, that's how Smith Optics was born. <laughs> so you're saying the man who invented my favorite sunglasses, goggles, and helmet was a dentist? Correct. An orthodontist. <laughs> I, I also wear a ski helmet as a smith helmet and a, and smith goggles and i love them so shout out Thank to you. the dr smith i guess no shout out please hit me up with a new helmet <laughs> promo code <laughs> please <laughs> promo code monday mornings <laughs> jk just kidding don't try it it's not gonna work uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe one day <laughs> in 1966 france dominated the first fis world alpine championships so yeah. we already learned that the first fis race happened in 1931 but this was the first time they had a whole world championship and also in 66 the jackson hole aerial tram opened which is like i don't want to say the most famous tram in the world but it's it's up there yeah. <laughs> it's like an iconic image of Jackson Hole. Damn. In 67, Mitch Carberly and Jordan Leap filed a patent for the anti-friction device, a Teflon pad that re- reduces liter- lateral friction and increases binding safe- safety. So you can still see that or versions of that on bindings today. So also in the 50s and 60s, Ski movies became all the rage. Yes. Which I'm guilty of loving ski movies myself. <laughs> I love even just like the short clips on Instagram. Oh <laughs> I am also a sucker for Warren Miller movies. True. There's one from, I think it's 84. That's my favorite one. And it's like so 80s. <laughs> oh. But like, they do like. So like a jump like sequence. What, yeah, and like 20 yes. people skiing in sync down the mountain. <laughs> I love it. In 1971, Bill Briggs was the first person to ski the Grand Teton. Also in 1971, Dick Barrymore films and promoted the K2 ski movie titled The Performers, which Ooh. kind of created like the K2 performer group, which kind of sparked the what they call the hot dog era of like crazy tricks and they, like oh, jumping yeah. over moguls and just like being <laughs> crazy <laughs> just full send <laughs> i can like envision it yes in 72 earl miller manufactured the miller softs which were wide and super soft skis which were one of the they were one of the first skis designed for strictly for powder nice Basically like water skis, but (laughs) for deep snow. (laughs) 
in 73, the Colorado Avalanche Warning Center opened, which was the the country's first avalanche forecasting service through telephone hotlines and the National Weather Service. So that was a huge step as far as backcountry skiing went, and even in resort skiing in places that were um, particularly avalanche prone. In 1981, Phil Marr was the first American to win the overall World Cup title. Previously, it had been dominated by mostly Europeans. But, like, as we have seen, the early history of skiing was mostly based in Europe and Scandinavia. Yeah. So, the United States was kind of later to the game. Obviously, because the United States didn't exist early on when skiing was being developed. (laughs) So. (laughs) Also, in 1981... Tamara McKinney was the first American woman to win an overall World Cup title. So that's badass. At <laughs> 115 millimeters underfoot, it was the first, like, true fat powder ski. Yeah. And, I mean, we're going to learn more about snowboarding in a minute here. Yeah. Get ready. I actually don't really know much about snowboarding, so I'm excited. It's a very short history, I can tell you that much. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not very old. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it would have been a lot older, but that's mostly <laughs> just sledding, I guess. Our listeners are just going to get sick of listening to me. <laughs> In 1990, Dynafit released the Torlight Tech Boot and Binding, which was the lightest ski touring setup slash binding on the market. Nice. And obviously, as we know, and most people that ski know or know about backcountry skiing know, the evolution of touring gear has just, it <laughs> has basically exploded. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 93, Doug and Emily Combs opened Valdez Heli Ski Guides, which was one of the first heli ski guiding services in the country or in the world. That's sick. Also in 93, Rob Watts made the first intuition liner. <laughs> Quote unquote, <laughs> saving countless black toes by revolutioning revolutionizing the comfort of ski boots i can't imagine ski boots without like that thick layer of like finsulate stuffing (laughs) i've ruined toes even with a thick layer of (laughs) yeah (laughs) in 88 rupert huber created the atomic powder plus by bandsawing a snowboard in half in 94 backcountry access released the alpine trekker which allowed alpine skiers to skin into the backcountry. So that was the first. I don't know if you've seen these. Now they have like Daymakers and other brands have stuff like this too. But it's basically an adapter that you put on your alpine binding that allows you to lift up your heel. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So that was kind of a. Also, I don't want to say revolutionary, but it was definitely an advancement. Especially oh, yeah, for people that thing. wanted to try backcountry but didn't want to fully commit to buying a full setup. <laughs> in 95, Vocal released the Snow Ranger, which I think there's still a version of the Snow Ranger on the market today. At 105 underfoot and relatively stiff, it was one of the first quote-unquote fat skis that was fully embraced by experts. Because a lot of like the ones we talked about before were fat skis, but they were still really flexible. Yeah. Which is good in some cases, but 
also not good in some cases. So, <laughs> in '95, Steve Jones, Todd Jones, Dirk Collins, and Corey Gavitt founded Teton Gravity Research. They're awesome. Definitely look them up if you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> they make awesome ski movies, and they do a lot of other really cool stuff that I probably shouldn't get into. <laughs> no. <laughs> in '97, the Winter X Games began in Big Bear, California. I love the X Games. <laughs> it's like X one of my favorite so parts great. of the winter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Skiing was introduced in 98 with Dennis Ray winning Skier X. JF Cusson won the first Ski Big Air in 99. Tanner Hall won the first slope style event in 2002. And Candide Thovex won the first Super Pipe in 2003. Sweet. Do you know about Candide? No. He's the one that makes those like crazy videos where he like jumps over cows and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then Solomon picked him up and the 1080, which is the first um, twin tip ski on the market, was born. Which honestly, I thought that would have come out sooner. But I guess the 90s and early 2000s were kind of the time for park skiing. Yeah. In 1998, Johnny Mosley wins a gold medal with a 360 mute grab at the Nagano Winter Games Mobile Competition. Johnny Mosley currently narrates most of the Warren Miller movies. So, yeah, that's awesome. He was also a professional skier at one point. <laughs> so, also in 97, Mike Douglas produced a video on the design and vision of the first twin tip ski. In 99, Chad. Zuring Casas hits Chad's gap at 120 foot backcountry gap between two mining tailings near Alta. Oh. There's a picture of this. We'll have to put this one on the Instagram too because it looks like he's just flying. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen, there's a coffee table book of like extreme skiing pictures. And no, I haven't the seen The cover it. of that. And it literally is just like a tiny red speck in the sky. <laughs> and it's when he's hit when he's jumping Chad's gap, which is 120 feet between the beginning and end. <laughs> no, thanks. In 2000, Denver psychiatry professor Tom Crowley invented the Avalon and then Black Diamond picked it up and sold it, sells it, which the Avalon is the avalanche backpack thing <laughs> oh yeah it's an air it's a backpack with an airbag so it creates a basically a bubble over yeah. you preventing yeah. compression yeah that's my and understanding space. otherwise but, the um yeah. snow will suffocate you right and we don't so want if that there's yeah so if Less there's an space, ideal then won't <laughs> You probably won't die right away, and you'll be able to dig yourself out a little bit, but... In 2002, Silverton Mountain, Colorado opened with one chairlift and outhouse and endless guided-only skiing. I don't know if you've looked up this place, but it's awesome. It's, like, basically all backcountry. There's one chairlift, so I guess you could call it, like, side country. Yeah. But it's all guided-only. You can't just go there. You have to set up... A guide. That sounds like my type of place. If we can do like slow-paced backcountry ski, I I can get on top on board with that. Absolutely. Add them to the list of places I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> In 2008, uh, one of our two most famous American skiers, 
of the 2000s, Bodie Miller and Lindsey Vaughn swept the men's and women's overall World Cup titles. In 2009, Backcountry Access released the the Float 30, which is a backpack with an airbag that gives skiers a 95% survival rate in avalanches. So basically like the Avalon, but a little bit more technologically advanced. That's good. In 2011, K2 made a big move in the sense that every ski in their line featured a rocker slash reverse camber technology, which nobody had really done yet. In 2014, the Winter Olympics were held in Sochi, Russia. Sochi, Russia. With some notable figures being Ted Ligeti, who won a gold medal for the United States in the giant slalom. Uh, Matthias Mayer, who won a gold medal in the downhill. He's from Austria. Many others. Oh, and Michaela. this was Michaela Schifrin's first gold medal at the Olympics Mm. in the slalom. Nice. Yeah. Shout out Vermont again. (laughs) She's famous here. And everywhere, really, at this point. (laughs) In 2018, the Winter Olympics were held in Pyeongchang, South Korea, with notable figures being... Asuka Lundsvindal, Matthias Mayer, Marcel Herscher, Andre Mayer, Sofia Gagia, Michaela Schifrin, and Frida Hans' daughter, all with gold medals. Nice. In 2022, Winter Olympics are now set to take place in Beijing. Hopefully. <laughs> if we can ever get out of this mess. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Every year, new ski technology comes out, and the the industry is constantly evolving, as many other industries, but specifically being a weather-based sport, it makes things a little more complicated. Most recently, the ski resort industry is being faced with the challenges presented as we go into a season with COVID-19 cases still skyrocketing in most states. So they're trying to figure out the best way to keep people stay safe and allow them to ski. And in and the and climate change threatening more severe weather patterns and the risk of snowless winters in the not so distant future. Yeah. So all we can do for now is hope for more snow. <laughs> pray for snow, everybody. <laughs> Play to pray to Uller and skate. <laughs> The god and goddess of skiing. My favorite. Alright, I'm going to stop the recording. Alright, so now that Morgan's told you all about the history. very Probably way too much about the history. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you probably way too much about snowboarding. So, the modern story of snowboarding starts in Muskegon, I think that's how you pronounce it, Michigan, on Christmas Day. In 1965, an avid surfer named Sherman Sherman Poppin strapped some skis together and created the Snurfer. He brought it out to the hill in his backyard and began snow surfing. After he saw how much fun his kids were having with the Snurfer, he spent like the next week looking around at Savers and Goodwill for any old cheap skis or water skis and quickly updated his design by adding a rope to the front of the board 
which helped with steering and kept the board from launching itself into the void, basically. My brother has a snurfer. Yeah. I'm so bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) So the original snurfer company, I'm pretty sure, is still around and they still sell snurfers. But I'm guessing they're a little bit more updated. They're not just planks of wood with, like, staples in them and, like, a rope. (laughs) Because the staples were there because there was no bindings. So there was no way to keep your feet in. So it was kind of just like a, you slid off. And that's why yeah, I put the rope on. still don't have bindings. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess he did patent the board. And the resources I read said different amounts of boards. So it was between 750000 sold in the 15-year period or half a million in one year. And... So (laughs) there is a whole bunch of these being sold in like a pretty short period of time. Uh, People became obsessed with the board and they would inspire future boards and boarders. So in the winter of 68, Poppin organized the first ever snurfing competition. The first competition that offered prize money wouldn't happen until 79 at the National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon State Park in Michigan. But throughout the 70s and 80s, snowboard pioneers started coming up with their own designs for boards and equipment. These guys would become the founders of some of the biggest brands in snowboarding history, including Dmitry Milkovich, Milovich of Winterstick, Jake Burton Carpenter of Burton Boards, Tom Sims of Sims Snowboards, David Kemper of Kemper Snowboards, and Mike Olson of New Snowboards. So in 1970, Wayne's Dovikin introduced his friend Dmitry Milovich to snowboarding. And then about two years later in 72, Milovich dropped out of Cornell, moved to Utah, and started testing out his own board designs. By 74, they had patents for two of their snow surfboards and opened a shop in Salt Lake City. Then Milkovich ended up teaming up with two friends, Don Moss and Renee Sessions in the winter of 76 and 75 to create the Winter Stick Company, which is still a company today, but it's not owned by him. Uh, so soon Winter Stick be- was sold in 11 different countries, but business was tough because many retail stores weren't interested in selling this new equipment that didn't have a backed fan base, really. There was no, like, like skiing as such. Like, you can sell skis anywhere and you know they're going to sell. But these snurfers weren't really established yet. So he closed Winterstick in 82, then reopened in 85, and finally to close again in 87, right before a huge snowboarding boom in popularity. But eh, it's okay. He moved on. He now has his own, I think, engineering firm. But Winterstick is still a brand. He just has no involvement. Neat. I didn't know that. Yeah. So... You can't talk about snowboarding without talking about Jake Burton Carpenter and the impact that he's left on the world of snowboarding. Jake was born on April 29th in 1954 in New York City. He went skiing for the first time in 1961 with his family at Bromley Mountain in Vermont. Oh. Yeah. I don't know where in Vermont that is, but cute New England shout out. <laughs> <laughs> He'd been hooked on snow and snowboarding ever since. Well, snow skiing and snowboarding. 
1968, he bought himself a snurfer after asking one for Christmas and getting a desk and said, Oh, no. (laughs) He bought it for $10 and spent countless hours on the local sledding hill with his friends. He originally went to college uh, at the University of Collar Boulder with hopes of joining their ski team, but they were the reigning NCAA champs, and he sadly didn't make the ski team. I guess they were mostly made up of really good European students. And then in the spring of 73, he left CU because he was in... I quote, this is from his own words, lonely and sad. I'm not making fun of him. He was lonely and sad. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Poor um, guy. He tried to go start working with racehorses back in New York. But on his first day, he saw that they shocked one in the nuts before a race. Oh my so God. he quit on his first day. <laughs> I don't blame him. That's rude. Yeah, he said, I was in it for because I really like animals, but then decided, no thank you. So sometime after he had some time off from school, he re-enrolled in night school at NYU, where he ended up being the captain of NYU's swim team. Oh. And graduated with a degree in economics. <laughs> in 77, he started working at an investment banking firm in Manhattan, but he got over those 12 to 14 hour days really quickly. So he decided, screw this, headed to Vermont and started to work on his new and improved snurfer. So I watched a BBC interview with him and he talks about how he knew snurfing wasn't going to be just this fad that would come and go and that he was going to stick with it. But he also knew that you had to have your feet better attached to the bindings because it was just not working out. <laughs> the string was danger. A... <laughs> yeah. So the whole object of snurfing was to stay on the board and basically just go in a straight line really fast. Um, but he created over 100 prototypes in his barn in Vermont with no prior manufacturing experience. He got some help from a friend who let him use their, uh, I think it was a surfboard factory during the nighttime to make some of his bur- boards. That's and then, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was like they were making surfboards at night and they were friends with him and they're like, yeah, we really support what you're doing so you can use it at night and use our materials and everything. It was really rad, I guess. <laughs> Very rad. So in 79, the first snurfing competition was held in Muskegon, Michigan, Um, And this was the first one that had a reward. Because his boards were now so different than the original Snurfer, Burton was required to compete in the open division by himself, which he ended up winning against nobody. But hey, he got (laughs) 300 bucks for it. First place out of one, right? (laughs) Yeah. He also got like, I forget what they wrote the times of the other competitors, and his time was like the slowest out of them all, but... (laughs) That wasn't really the point of the board that he was going for. Mm -hmm. So he got to show off his boards and some tricks, you know. In 81, he moved his factory from Londonderry to Manchester, Vermont. And they bought this barn house 
So the barn was the factory, the living room was the store, the basement was the warehouse, and the bedroom was the office. The phone rang around the clock with toll-free catalog inquiries, he said in um, an article I read. In May of 83, Jake Burton Carpenter married his wife, Donna Gaston, and that fall and winter, Jake was able to talk to the Stratton Mountain Ski Patrol in Vermont. And he was able to talk to them, talk them into allowing ski boarders on chairlifts, making Stratton the first major resort to allow snowboarders on their lifts. Oh, how far we've come. Or I how know. far snowboarding has come. <laughs> I know. So that was only in 83 before that, because it started, <laughs> snurfing started back in 65. Uh-huh. So by the time 83 ro- ro- rolled around, um snowboarders were basically just like giving lifties like a six pack and like hey yeah can we ride at night that's hilarious <laughs> so eventually because of burton snowboarders were allowed on ski lifts in a lot more places uh-huh. um and honestly jake is a powerhouse and has a massive amount of motivation because the next year in 84 he went on a ski trip with his wife's family to austria but spent the majority of his evenings visiting ski factories and trying to convince somebody to produce produce his snowboards with steel edges. Neat. Like, fun way to fend- That's dedication. <laughs> I know. I think you're on vacation, but okay. Go at it. Um, that does eventually... not sound like a healthy work-life balance. No. But, I mean, it got him pretty far, so... <laughs> yeah, he was basically inventing no snowboards, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> eventually, he found keel ski and went on to manufacture the first snowboards with ski like construction so they had the steel edges uh p-tex and a p-tex base um in 85 jake and donna started burton's european operations when they moved to austria full-time and began manufacturing marketing and distribution they ended up moving back to vermont and i have a direct quote from his lifetime um, he wrote, him, wrote himself a timeline, and it's on the Burton website, and it's actually, like, really great because it's all written in his words. So That's it's like, so cool. <laughs> it's like, this month, this year, I went skiing with this person. It was fun. <laughs> it's so cute. But So this one made me laugh. It's November 12th, 1989. Our first child, George Burton Carpenter, was born in Rutland, Vermont. And then in parentheses, good luck finding an anesthesiologist on the first day of hunting season in Vermont. <laughs> facts <laughs> good luck finding anything on the first day of hunting season in vermont <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that made me laugh so then in 92 he moved the burton factory further north to burlington vermont and he oh, had just Finley county yeah so he had just over 100 employees at that point and then in 93 his second son tyler gaston burton carpenter was born and later that year, Jake would attempt to teach his older son how to ski. And in his own words, he said that he almost killed both of them in the process. <laughs> Didn't elaborate, but he said that that was the last time he would ski. <laughs> oh my gosh. So after that, he was done and fully went to snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> so in 96, his third son, Timmy Eaton Burton Car- Carpenter, was born. And then in 2011, so between 96 and 2011, 
he had obviously been making huge strides for the snowboarding community and attending the Olympics and X Games and expanding on his Burton empire. But that was way too much information to include. Because <laughs> it's not a Jake Burton episode. So <laughs> That's true. So in 2011, Jake sent an email company-wide to inform his employees that he had bad and good news. Quote, the bad news is I have cancer. The good news is, is it's curable as it gets. And he had testicular cancer and started chemo treatment soon after. What year was that? 2011? Gotcha. Yeah. So March 12th, 2015, he was brought to Copley Hospital in Vermont for the first for, this is a direct quote from his timeline as well. Well, parts of it. Um, he, he was brought to Copley Hospital in Vermont for the first signs of Miller-Fisher syndrome, which is a really rare type of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is also really rare. He ended up getting transferred to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire. And then... Quote, according to Donna, I was intubated on Sunday, March 15th. The paralysis spread for the first two and a half weeks. Then I was stable, almost fully paralyzed for another two and a half weeks. Then very slowly, I got my muscles back. In total, approximately eight weeks of paralysis and full time on breathing machines. I was a total of 10 to 11 weeks before I was fully off breathing machines. I was in the ICU my entire stay at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He was eventually moved to Spalding Hospital at the end of April to begin rehab. And this is Spalding in Boston, right by North Station and the Garden. Uh, in June, he returned to his house in Stowe, Vermont for the first time since he was admitted to the hospital. And then in the beginning of 2019, Jake and his wife moved to Europe to, quote, escape the madness in the USA and help support the European market and shred the Alps. <laughs> Later on, November 10th of 2019, he sent another email to his Burton employees. She said, quote, you will not believe this, but my cancer has come back. It is the same tumor as the first time around. We just never got rid of it. A bit of it hung out in my lymph nodes and got back into business. The odds are in my favor, but it's going to be a struggle for sure. As much as I dread what's facing me, it's easier to deal with when you know that you have a family that will carry on. I feel the same way about my company, my friends, and our sport. I will be back, but regardless, everything is in good hands, which is an amazing feeling when entering the zone of uncertainty. Bye. And then on November 21st, 2019, co-CEO of Burton, John Lacey, emailed Burton employees again, saying, quote, it is filled with a very heavy heart that I share the news that Jake passed away peacefully last night, surrounded by his family and loved ones, as a result of complications for, from recurring cancer. He was our founder, the soul of snowboarding, the one who gave us the sport we all love so much. The death of snowboarding legend Jake Burton Carpenter rocked the snowboarding and snow sports world. I remember it and being yeah, sad about it. it. Yeah. I don't even snowboard, and I was, oh, it was like a gut punch. I watched, I think it was the X Games a few weeks ago, and they, out in Colorado or Utah, and they did a huge um, run for Jake. And That's cool. I was watching it with my boyfriend's parents and almost cried. Oh. <laughs> I was like, 
my first time meeting them. Like, <laughs> don't cry over a snowboarding legend, please. <laughs> so that was the life and greatness of Jake Burton Carpenter, who really just did so much for snowboarding and snowboarding community. He's one of the main reasons why snowboarders are allowed at major ski resorts and the X Games and the Olympics. So, yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about the Olympics really quick. So just like it was a little bit of a battle to get snowboarding allowed on the mountains, it was also a huge struggle to get into the Olympics. But this changed when snowboarding was added to the 98 Japan Olympics with two events for both men and women. The first individuals to ever win a gold Olympic snowboarding medals um, were... Karine Ruby from France and Ross Rebagliati Rebagliati <laughs> from <I> Canada. <laughs> Sorry, and Ross. then in May of 2012, the International Paralympic Committee announced adaptive snowboarding or para-snowboarding would be a medal event in the 2014 Paralympic Games in Sochi, Russia. Right. Which is super awesome. So snowboarding has really only been in the olympics literally a few times (laughs) that is so fascinating i always forget that it's such a recent thing it's only like really been around for what like 40 years yeah it's not i mean 60 i guess but yeah i guess if you count the snurfer (laughs) yeah if you count the snurfer (laughs) so you also Just like with Jake Burton, you can't talk about snowboarding without talking about Sean White, a.k.a. the Flying Tomato. (laughs) So Sean White, I can tell you right now, is the reason why I really liked snowboarding. I remember in, like, middle school watching (laughs) the (laughs) Olympics and being like, oh, my God, this guy's so good. Knew absolutely nothing about snowboarding, but I was like, he's good. (laughs) Sean Roger White was born on September 3rd, 1986 in San Diego, California. He was born with a congenital heart defect, so he had two open surgeries before the age of one, which is absolutely wild alone, but it's also even more wild that he was then able to become such a talented athlete. Yeah. So he grew up by the beach, not mount, not the mountains. So people always like, oh, are you from like Colorado and Vermont? I watched a video and he was like, I'm not. <laughs> I don't live near the mountains. I live in San Diego. <laughs> but he was actually really into skateboarding from a young age and even into befriending Tony Hawk at the age of nine at a local skate park. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So Tony Hawk started to mentor him. And he's even gone on to won a ton of titles in, like, skateboarding. I did not know that. Neither did I. But, you know. Huh. So, like I said, about the age of six, he followed his brother's footsteps and decided skiing was no longer cool and wanted to switch to snowboarding. <laughs> but it's also a lot more similar to surfing and skateboarding, so I understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but by age seven, he got his first sponsorship. And he has participated in the Winter Olympics in 2006, 2010, 2014, and 2018, getting a gold in the halfpipe in all years except for 2014. 
He's also has won a medal in all Winter X Games from 2002 to 2013. So, like, okay, go off, King. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> like, cool, cool, Legendary. Yeah. So, at the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, Italy, he won the gold for the halfpipe, scoring a 46.8 out of 50 in the finals, which is huge. Damn. Um, I watched, like, one of the videos I watched on YouTube was him talking about, like, his Olympic experience, and I watched these runs that he did, and the amount of air he gets off the half pipe is insane. <laughs> it's also, like, they have other athletes in the video talking about how insanely hard that is to do, and, like, he just makes everything look so easy. <laughs> Must be nice. I know. (laughs) I make everything look hard. (laughs) At the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver for the halfpipe event, Sean scored a 46.8 on his first run, which was a high enough score for him to have won the gold. But for his second run, he decided to attempt the double Mick twist 1260, which he ended (laughs) up landing and naming the tomahawk later on. So I guess he told himself, like, from before, like, I'm only going to do this trick, like, if I really have to. And then I guess in the back of his mind, he really was just like, nah, man, we're going to we're going to fully do it. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and I remember watching it and everybody was like, oh, my God, he landed it. So he the double McTwist 1260 ended up getting him a score of 48.5 on his final run, giving oh him the God. gold. With a 3.4 point lead over the next athlete. Like, whoa. (laughs) Uh, So then, I guess, showing up the X Games in the years after he had won those Olympics, he always felt like he could feel people hating him, but also was super aware of the fact that it comes with the territory of being the best. And they have, like, Tony Hawk talking about how, like, yeah, you're really going to feel hated when you're the best athlete in your sport, but it just happens. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mostly because everybody's, like, envious of you, so. It happens for every great athlete and every great team. It's just the name of oh, the game. Yeah. Uh, I guess he, and after the 2010 Olympics at some point, he ended up donating his long luscious locks to locks of loves <laughs> um and reporters were like what are you gonna do without the name flying tomato he was like just call me sean <laughs> my name is sean <laughs> so he did not have a great time at the 2014 winter olympics in sochi he was supposed to enter two of the competitions instead of just half pipe but he ended up dropping slope style, I think, like, the day or night before it because he watched. That. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, like, all the videos of the slope style, but just in warm-ups and in the preliminaries, basically everybody who went down that run ate it, like, knocked themselves out, like, went oh flying. God. It was yeah. bad. Like, people were getting really, really injured. So... People kind of judged him for it, but he was like, I literally watched one of my good friends get knocked out on that course and tons of other people get hurt. So not worth it. Yeah, I was like, yeah, obviously you should drop it because this is currently your career. (laughs) You can't fix your brain if you break it. No. So I guess he has this ritual of eating a steak the night before competition. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 
but his coach couldn't find any because it was they were in like Russia. <laughs> Do Russians I not eat steak? <laughs> they couldn't find steak there or something. I don't know. So his coach ended up just giving him this like warmed up ham. <laughs> so he ended up making it through the qualifiers. But after those, he literally thought to, he said that he thought to himself, I'm not going to win and I know it. Mm-hmm. Guess what? He was right. He fell and placed fourth. Uh. I know. But he did. There is a quote that he said, I won the Olympics and I was unhappy. I won the Olympics and I was unhappy. I lost the Olympics and I was happy. All right, then. So, I mean, good for him for... Listen to your gut. Yeah. Uh, basically, after that, he said that, like, people who he said, like, had hated him before were posting on social media and were like, such a great guy, amazing athlete, like, keep your head high, like, stay strong. <laughs> it was like, so I guess it really was just everybody like, being jealous. <laughs> people love an underdog. Yeah. So basically, that didn't stop him from snowboarding though obviously he still snowboards um and at the 2018 winter olympics he won his third gold medal with a score of 97.75 out of 100 hell yeah yeah so some of his athletic achievements um these are straight from the wikipedia page he was the first to compete and medal in both summer and winter x games he is the first snowboarder to ever land back-to-back double corks at the Red Bull Superpipe. He remains the only skater to land the frontside heel flip for 540 body varial, or the armadillo. <laughs> he was first to land a cab seven melon grab invert skateboarding. <laughs> He's the first snowboarder to win back-to-back gold medals in Winter X Games Superpipe. First athlete ever on snowboard or skis to win gold medals four years in a row in the Winter X Games Superpipe. First and only person to win both a summer and winter Dew Cup. First to three-peat in Superpipe Winter X Games. And he holds the record for highest score in the men's halfpipe in the Winter Olympics in 2018. So he also (laughs) is in a band... (laughs) Oh my gosh. Has his own clothing line. He has video games. <laughs> oh, video games. He's a part owner of Mammoth Mountain. I didn't know that. Neither did I. That's cool. And he owns a sports and music festival company called Air and Style. Wow. I guess they like bring these like art and sport festivals to different areas. So there's just like a ton of music and like ski competitions and events and stuff that's awesome he's so multifaceted yeah he's very much like an entrepreneur who was like i like this and this and this and this (laughs) i feel you bro yeah yeah uh also since 2008 he has granted at least 20 wishes to make a wish foundation oh yeah in the video they had a spokesperson from make a wish saying that I guess in 2008, somebody called him and was like, yeah, there's a teenager who had the same exact heart surgery as you. Would you be willing to come meet him? And he went down and met him. And since then, he's just, he says that if there's ever a wish that he can grant, he will answer that call. That's so wholesome. I know. Like, oh, I love it. What a good little bean. (laughs) (laughs) 
A tomato. (laughs) Basically, that's most of the history. And I mean, obviously, there's a ton of other major players in snowboarding, but I wanted to talk about the different types of injuries that are most common because they are pretty different than skiing, honestly. Uh, But first, the only mountains in the U.S. that I could find that do not allow snowboarders are Alta and Deer Valley in Utah and Mad River Glen in Vermont. All right. So snowboarding injuries happen at twice the rate of alpine skiing injuries, about four to six per thousand um, snowboarders per day. Injuries are most common in beginners who didn't take lessons. So me, um, (laughs) take a lesson. (laughs) I feel victimized, but I also am like, really, I understand it because I fell a lot. About a quarter of injuries are in first time riders and half of those are from with less than a year of experience. More experienced riders to get, tend to get less injuries, but when they do, they tend to be more severe. Two-third of injuries are upper body injuries, and one-third are lower bodies, which is the exact opposite of when it comes to skiing. They have two-thirds lower bodies, like a lot of knee injuries in skiing and a lot more wrist injuries in snowboarding. Mm -hmm. And speaking of wrist injuries, about 40% of all snowboarder injuries are wrist injuries. Oh, I totally believe that. Catch oh, yourself yeah. on your wrists. 24% are wrist fractures. Ugh. So there's about 100,000 worldwide each year. Yeah. So they say that it's really important to wear wrist guards and try not to catch yourself with your hands because you're more likely to break your wrist that way. Like just let yourself fall. <laughs> yeah, I was like, don't. So then this is what Wikipedia says. It says to, quote, land with arms stretched out like a wing, and slap the slope with the entire arm. <laughs> it's an effective way to break a fall. And okay, fly away. I, I can't think of that without just seeing myself flapping both my arms into the snow as I fall. And just like and flying away into the sky. Flapping around like a fish. <laughs> so head injuries are between two and six times more likely in snowboarders than skiers. They're also less common but more severe in more experienced riders. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think that's because more experienced riders, similar to more experienced skiers, tend to not wear helmets and also tend to be doing more risky and things that require more skill. So if you mess up a little bit, you're more likely to smash your head on something. Right, and more likely to be complacent. Yeah. Uh, So as somebody who's been snowboarding literally twice, I can tell you I'm not shocked about the head injuries being more frequent in snowboarders. Literally every time I fell on my butt, I could feel my brain moving. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, this is not fun. So falling somewhere other than the bunny hill or even at a higher speed, I feel like could so easily give you concussion. And this is really obvious, but please just like always wear a helmet. Like I said before, you can't fix your brain if you break it. Yeah, you get too many concussions and your brain doesn't go back to normal. You, like, can't hold a normal job. You can't, like, do anything. So stop. Put a helmet on. 
Um, then I also wrote, you look dumb without one and you won't, won't look cute with your brain on the slopes. And now you've ruined some family's vacation because your head split open. <laughs> and your ears pulled. <laughs> um, this one I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> Four to 8% of snowboarding injuries take place while waiting in line or getting on or off the lift. Oh my God. And let me tell you, I understand it. <laughs> So you have one foot strapped in and you're scooting along in the snow. How are you not going to like slip, fall, and then like your one leg just goes flying and then... I know I would, but... (laughs) And then getting off the lift, if you don't have a stomp pad or something that will like keep your foot that's not attached from sliding around, you're going to get off and I don't know. It's also hard for me because switching from going facing down the hill to not like is a lot different but I think that's why I would be a terrible snowboarder I want my feet pointing in the direction I want to go yeah (laughs) and these are also obviously injuries that are more common in beginners and then so as we mentioned before avalanche safety it's massively important in skiing and snowboarding and if you're sticking to groomed trails at like a ski resort you're probably fine but (laughs) If you're going to be skiing in the backcountry or out in, like, Canada on the back of mountains, you really need to make sure you've taken an avalanche class and have the appropriate gear. You shouldn't be going out there with, like, out a shovel or anything. Mm-hmm. But And like everything else, check the weather and trust your gut. Yeah, and always make sure you tell somebody where you're going and when you'll be back. And ideally don't go alone. <laughs> yes, which is hard for me to say as a person who likes to ski and hike and do outdoorsy things alone sometimes. Yeah. But for safety reasons, bring a buddy. Yeah. Or at least, like, if you're going to wander off alone, make sure you have friends that are going to check in with you at the base. <laughs> Something. Mm-hmm. So to end it on a really a little bit more fun note, I wanted to just read some of the funny names of different <laughs> snowboarding tricks. Cause... Yeah. <laughs> And I will tell you what any of them are if you want to know. Just so, just tell me to pause. Okay. So there are Stiffy, Stink Bug. Okay, I want to know what the Stink Bug is. It's when you grab the front side or mute with rider's elbow passing to inside of the knees. Style conventions dictate that during a grab, the elbow should be positioned to the outside of the knee. I'm going to have to look that up. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to need to see, like, a video of it. Visual. There's butter, pretzel, bagel, bonk, (laughs) McEgg, egg flip, eggplant, sad plant. (laughs) Sad plant. (laughs) Hand plant. Michael Chuck. (laughs) McTwist. Double McTwist. Crippler, rippy flip, ninety roll, under flip, backside rodeo flip, <laughs> front side misty, backside misty, wildcat, front flip, cork, and ho ho. <laughs> ho ho. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Oh, chicken so salad trail, Canadian bacon, bloody Dracula, beef curtains. <laughs> beef curtains? Gorilla, Korean bacon, <laughs> melon, pickpocket, rusty trombone, slob, squirrel, tailfish, tindy, and truck driver. 
beautiful. <laughs> so much creativity. And those, if anybody would like to know more snowboard tricks, that is on the Wikipedia page titled List of Snowboard Tricks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So thanks for listening and letting me tell you all about the history of snowboarding. Well, thanks for telling us. I feel like I learned a lot. (laughs) Yay. And on that note, stay tuned next Monday and every Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. We're on Instagram at Monday Mornings Pod, on Twitter at Monday Mornings P, and we have a Facebook page. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, you can also email us at mondaymorningspod at gmail.com. Start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan. Duh. Duh. (laughs) Adios. Bye.